I think everything is in order. Okay, now we left off last Friday uh, talking about the issue of a conviction, uh, the Holy Spirit's work in, in salvation and drawing people to Christ. We're in John chapter 16. We read that passage, so I'll not ask you to turn back there. I'm going to jump right in here where we left off. The first point that we talked about was the channel of the Holy Spirit's work in the world. He said, the Lord Jesus Christ departed so that he could send the Holy Spirit to believers. And he said, when he has come to you, if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world. So through believers, the Spirit of God does his work in the world. That brings us to this next point, and that is Scripture describes the character of the Holy Spirit's work in the world. Young people, that character is basically wrapped up in one word here in John chapter 16. When he is come, he will reprove the world. And that word reprove, as you see, I have it. I have it written out here for you, is the word in elenco. And uh, the idea uh, is that it means to scrutinize or examine carefully, to bring to light, or to expose. And this is its negative connotation. Good morning, sir. Uh, there is a positive connotation to it as well. Uh, it means also to bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing, uh, to convict, to convince. So there is a positive aspect of this blaming in that it is aimed in bringing a person to recognize his error or to convincing the person of wrong. The Spirit persuades sinners of right. So what you have here are two concepts wrapped up in that word. And I take it that the Lord Jesus, when he spoke it, and the Holy Spirit of God, when he moved John to write it, uh, chose the word on purpose. The negative concept is to fix blame, to fix guilt. The positive concept is to persuade or convince. If you want two nice little words that deal with, that are alliterated, convict and convince. Are the, is, is the twofold uh, is the twofold idea of the um, of the word, and this is the Holy Spirit's work. Now that word, and we will be greatly aided in our understanding when we see that that word is used throughout the New Testament uh, in John chapter three. And verse 20, and I don't, I, I should be able to quote it. We have looked at that in talking about regeneration, but uh, let's come, let me come back to it. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the, uh, hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And the word reproved, it's translated several ways in the New Testament. But uh, the idea of reproved there is this word alenko. Then, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16 and verse 17, this is a part of the work of the Word of God. All Scripture 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. What's the next word in the process? For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the word of God itself will do that reproving work. Uh, I don't want to open up a confessional booth. Uh, I'm not going to ask anybody to give a personal testimony. I am hoping I am not the only person who has had this experience. You start the day, you're sitting there alone in the quiet somewhere, reading the Word of God, and all at once the Spirit of God just, boom, nails you with with some issue. You've been there, and, been there and done that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God, doing that work of reproving. So the Word of God by itself. Jesus did the work of reproving. The Word of God does the work of reproving. And then Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And so the very act of preaching the word of God should in part be a, a work of reproving as well. Now, let me be very careful about that. Um, that, is, that is a part of the work. That's not all that the preacher is supposed to do. And I know I have heard guys who seemed like that was their calling in life, just to get up and to blame folks. But in preaching the whole counsel of God, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. I've got it. I'm quoting and I'm not quoting. Let me get it. Let's get it right. Preach the word. Yes, that's right. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into preaching. Reproving is part of it. Uh, exhorting. Uh, uh, rebuking is part of it. Uh, exhorting, encouraging is another part of it. Patience is another part of it. It's not all going to happen. No matter what kind of a ministry of the word you find yourself involved in, whether you're dealing with somebody one-on-one -on -one or whether you're standing in a pulpit, it isn't all going to happen at once. It is a process of work many times Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering, and do it with a doctrinal basis. There's a whole, there is a whole orbed, full orbed concept to the idea of preaching there, but reproving is part of it. Have I made myself clear? Right? So, so uh, that is that is uh, those are some things that we need to understand. Now that brings us. Then let's let's make some applications here. Have any of you, Sarah? You're in theological systems. Who else is in theological systems? Then have any of you gotten George Houghton's book, 
get uh, Law and Grace. Okay, I I started reading it because Regular Baptist Press sent me a PDF copy before before it actually hit the street, and uh, I had read a whole chunk of it, and uh, now have it ink on paper and just over the weekend finished reading it, and. Uh, I am again impressed, and I want to stop right here just to say, if this stuff is, we take this scripture and this scripture and put it together and have it all nice and neatly formulated and walk out of here, then number one, I'm a pretty solid And number two, we have not got the idea. You remember way back we talked about one of the points of one of the things that theology ought to do is make us better disciples. And there is some very practical application uh, that needs to be made right here. The Holy Spirit of God does this work, and he uses the Word of God to do it, which we will get, which is my second point. But he does it through believing. You and I have to, by divine design the channels through which this work takes place. And if people are going to be convicted of sin, convinced of Christ, and drawn to salvation, it's going to be because human beings who know Christ allow themselves to be the channels through whom the Holy Spirit works. In other words, we've got to be the witnesses. We've got to be the soul winner. That is part and parcel of John chapter 16, right? Then he uses the word in the work of conviction. Aren't you glad that he does not use and is not dependent upon your brilliant reasoning? Aren't you glad he's not dependent upon your persuasion? The Spirit of God uses the word of God. We've got to be the channel through which that message goes. We cannot do that work of conviction ourselves. And we must not attempt to do that. Uh, that's one of the things, and I don't want to be negative only. Sometimes to be negative. Uh, there, there has been around for a long time a kind of a crisis theology and it can become a manipulative thing. And I have, you know, I've heard people say something like, uh, uh, people have to be drawn to a crisis of decision, and every once in a while you've got to create the crisis. The Spirit of God will create the crisis in people's lives. He's got, to, he's got to use the Word of God. We cannot do that work of conviction ourselves. And we must depend on the Spirit of God to use the Word and to work through us in this work of conviction. There must be bold, Spirit-filled preaching. Acts 4 and verse 8, Peter, filled with the Spirit, made the pronouncement of Acts 4 and verse 12, that neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. When we get to pneumatology, 
And we talk about the power of the Spirit of God. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are some that are excellent. Uh, I think the key, and I can only tell you from my from my own experience, and I can I can see it in our own kids, and I can see it in as I as I look back on my own experience. Uh, when I was a pastor, invitations were there always. I tried to be very careful to put the people in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God while I preached as well as some of the key to an invitation. I would not be bashful about making a plea, but my plea, more than probably any other, was Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, pardon not your heart. When the Spirit of God speaks, you have a responsibility to respond. And I think, I think we have to be very careful one-on-one -on -one that we don't try to harangue or harass a person into a decision. That we, that we present the gospel and we should not be bashful. We should not be bashful about stressing the life and death eternal consequences of what we do with that. But we can't, we can't bring them classic illustration and I did not see it. I preached in the church outside of Manchester, England where this happened. And the guy, he's now retired, but uh, Ron and Connie Stidham uh, went with Baptist World Mission to England in, I think they probably had their support raised and got there in 73. I know at Thompson Road Baptist Church in Indianapolis, we took them on just after I got there in 73. And if they weren't there in 73, they were there very early in 74. But it was right at that period of time. So they were they were there 35 years or so. And uh, Ron did a wonderful work, uh, built a church in the city of Bolton, which is a Manchester suburb. But anyway, he told the story one night of a lady in a prayer meeting who sat there and who said to them as they were getting ready to pray, would you pray that I would be saved? And Ron said, I shook my head and I said, yes, we will be glad to pray for you that you be saved. And they did. Right there, the president later got saved. He said, I could have, you know, he said, I could have got my Bible out and I could have, I could have given her a gospel presentation right there. And you've just got to know when you are dependent, or that you are dependent and you've got to sense, when do I gently plead? Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. The spirit and the bride say, there are, why will you die? Turn. I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, Ezekiel. God please. I mean, your Bible is full, is full of urgent appeal to the sin. 
And we must, led by the Spirit of God, biblically make those appeal. But we cannot manipulate. And that's how how do I how do I give you a one, two, three, four formula as to this is what you do and this is what you don't? I think you've just got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit at the You know what? Minds and personalities and temperaments are all different. And I don't know that you can quantify that in the variety of the human nature. I just don't. But again, how does it happen and what is the emotional experience? That that's the thing you can't. That's the thing you can't. That I don't know how to quantify. Right? Okay. Uh, can I can I give you? Let me use one illustration out of our own family. Uh, you have heard me say, and I haven't taken the time to tell the story. But you've heard me say that we have a son in heaven, uh, Jim. Turned to Christ in April of 1969. In March of 1969, he was about a month short of his first birthday. He was hit and killed on June 28, 1969. But nobody prayed with him when he got sick. We talked to him. We knew the Spirit of God was working in his heart. He had told us. But uh, in, in fact, he didn't tell us that he got saved for maybe a week or so after. We were sitting at the table one night, Judy and I and Jim, just three of us, and, uh, and uh, there was a young couple in our church who had been saved who were ready to get baptized. And Judy and I were all excited about this young couple getting saved, and, and we're sitting there at the table, and what Jim said, I'm a Christian. Well, how'd you get saved? And his answer was, he called the name of the evangelist. He had my chair, my room, sat down on my chair by my desk, by myself. And there's got to be that Holy Spirit persuasion, you name it. And in light of what happened just a few weeks later, I ever so glad that there was no human manipulation involved in that. That was that was of the Lord. I I remember praying a day or two afterwards, Lord, if you've really done a work in his life, I want to see the evidence. And we did. Takes the story beyond this, but uh, at any at any rate, somewhere there's got to be that Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit conviction. And uh, we had a guy in that same church, more or less the same time. It was in March of sixty. Would have been March of. Well, this was a year earlier, March of sixty-eight. Leonard Cox 
later came to Maranatha. He did not finish. He was 38 years old when he got saved and ended up pastoring down by Freeport, Illinois for a few years. But uh, Leonard, in a town of 3,800 people, Leonard was the town drunk. And people had witnessed to him before I ever got there, and Deacon and I went and saw him, and, and I'd go see him. And he got mad, and he wouldn't come to our church for a while, and all kinds of stuff. Finally, one Sunday morning, he comes walking down the aisle. And preached on Second Chronicles 7, 14. Gave the invitation. Leonard Cox walks down the aisle as clear-eyed and as matter-of-fact and as unemotional as anybody in this room right now. And fallen all the law, matter-of-fact. He's sober every day of his life. His wife, when she got saved, got out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning, called on the Lord, couldn't talk to us at supper time the next night. Came to the house, had a purse you could pack for a weekend. And she digs in that purse and she comes out with this paper. And it was two or three pages of eight and a half by eleven paper on which she had written out her testimony. She sat there sobbing while I read what she had written. She couldn't even talk. Supper time, and this had happened earlier in the morning. So how do you gauge that in different people? Okay. Is that fair enough? That y'all understand where I'm coming from? Yes, sir. And and when when ready, they're ready. Okay. Have, have any of you ever read the story of William Wilberforce? Uh, did you read the story, Melissa, of the guy witnessing to him on the cross? Okay. It's I'd I'd have to find out. You'd have to get into the archives of Christianity today. But Wilberforce was this young, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And a believer was witnessing to him, and Wilberforce was academically turning his argument at every at every turn. And the man finally, in exasperation, said, "Whenever you're ready, I'll talk to you." Wilberforce gets back to England. Really got under conviction. And you know who ended up leading him to Christ? This is this you talk about. You talk about what Wilberforce later did. You think Almighty God has a sense of humor. It was John Newton who led Wilberforce to Christ. The old slave ship captain led Wilberforce to Christ. And Wilberforce is the guy who almost single-handedly or through long years rid England of slavery. That's, you know, but, but again, Wilberforce had to come to that point. Okay, is that good enough? But that is, listen, it's got to get to that level of practicality. It's got to get to that level of practicality. All right. Now, uh, let's talk about the content. The character of his work is he convicts. It's a negative blame. It is a 
positive, convincing. But let's talk about the content. What is the material, the subject matter, with which the Spirit of God deals? I'm so glad the Lord Jesus said it to us. Let's just review it. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. So the Lord Jesus lays out these three terms. Sin, righteousness, judgment. And he tells us that the Spirit of God will do a specific thing in with each of those terms. We better get a hold of that. Right? Help to see what, what he's doing. Uh, first of all, he convinces the world or convicts the world of sin. The reason for men's sinfulness, and watch this, is because they believe not on me. And Jesus is already, is while well, he has been through John 3, he's been through John 4, you have seen a whole lot of the gospel laid out by the time we get to this point. Uh, and he has, he has talked to the Pharisees in John 5, in John 8, about the fact they would not believe on him, though he came from the Father. Uh, he is the remedy for the sin problem. That is the point. And uh, he died for the sin of all men, Hebrews 2 and verse 9, by the grace of God. He tasted death for every man, and he settled the sin question. And the reason for men's sinfulness, the ultimate demonstration of men's sinfulness, is their rejection of Christ. And then, that, that would be the negative side of it. Notice the positive side of it. The Spirit convicts the world of righteousness, and Jesus says, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. He came to do one thing. And that was, by his death on Calvary, provide for mankind righteousness. And so you have, whether John 19.30 in his great cry, it is finished. Romans 3, 21 to 26, the righteousness of God unto all and upon all them that believe. Uh, God is just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Uh, Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is received by faith and when he had completed that work, the language of Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is so clear. He is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. The work is finished. He went back to glory. He'll persuade the world of sin because they haven't believed in you, of righteousness. The work is done. Righteousness is available. I go back to my Father. You see me no more. And by the way, what's he doing at the right hand of the Father today? One of the things Hebrews 7.25, he's 
evil also to seize them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And at the right hand of the Father, he is able to save. So uh, you, you've got a whole string of scripture that falls into that falls into place there. And uh, and so the work is done. And then this next statement is so powerful and so forceful. He says of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Now, there is no question that Satan is the god of this world. You don't I don't think I need to prove that to you here, do I? The God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, right? And he was judged at Calvary. John 12, 31. You remember when the Greeks came to see Jesus? They, they uh, was it... Uh, came to Andrew, and Andrew brought them to Christ. I believe that's right. That is in um, uh, John chapter 12. And yeah, John 12, 21. The same, uh, there are certain Greeks, verse 20, came uh, to, uh, to Philip, saying we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. He starts into his long, now is the time that the Son of Man should be glorified. Notice in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Let's get a hold of this. Hebrews, the second chapter. And let's look at the 14th and the 15th. The 14th and the 15th verses. Do I have it right? I do. <laughs> For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Satan will not be defeated somewhere out there. Satan was defeated at Calvary. Let me give you, as long as I've gotten that far into it, let me give you just a couple of other passages on that. Take a look, will you please, at um, uh, Colossians 2. Just one verse is all I need. Verse 15, where Paul is talking about the cross, and he says here, talking about demonic powers, satanic powers, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, that is, in his cross. So we've got to get a hold of the fact that Satan's demise was accomplished at Calvary. It was sealed with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's Jesus' reasoning 
folks. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the prince of this world be cast out. When he is come, Holy Spirit of God, he will reprove and convict the world of sin, righteousness, judgment. Number one of sin, because they believe not. Number two of righteousness, because I go to my Father, you see me no more. Righteousness is available from God because I've done the work to provide that. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is God. And the line of reasoning that If Satan was God, how By the way, you can go to Romans chapter 2, where Paul talks about the judgment of God. It'll be according to truth. It'll be according to my gospel. God's going to judge the secrets of men. There's no respect to persons of God. Paul gives you a fourfold description of the coming judgment of God on the unseen in the second chapter of the book of Romans. And that is another point. It is not Moritz's insight. <laughs> way better men than me, way long before me, nailed this. There's a great quote somewhere in Spurgeon about it. But where judgment is not preached, the gospel is not preached. Among other things, what was Calvary? Was it not a judgment? He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And the Spirit of God uses judgment. Look at Paul in Acts chapter 17. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he's appointed a day in the which he's going to judge the world in righteousness. That man whom he hath ordained, whereof he's given assurance unto all men, and that he's raised him from the dead. Or you go to Acts chapter 13 in the synagogue in Antioch, and after he preaches that by faith in Christ there is justification, he turns around and warns them from Hosea of coming judgment. And you cannot fully preach the gospel without preaching judgment. Again, that's not all of it, but that is a component. Right? And by the way, Romans 8. Isn't that a glorious truth? There is therefore now what? No condemnation. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. And the great, glorious gospel truth is that Calvary was that judgment. And based on the finished work of Christ, mankind may escape. Okay? That's 
<clears throat> now, Scripture uses this term. Uh, let's back up and try to get a shot at the whole picture again. We are talking about what it is that brings a person to Christ. One of the terms the Bible uses is this term, sanctification, is this term, conviction. Then, another term that the Bible uses, and it only uses it to my knowledge twice, is this term, sanctification of the Spirit. But in both cases where this term is used, there is associated with it the purpose of God's election, the work of the Spirit in drawing the person to Christ, and the act of faith. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. Will you please with me for a moment? I'm not going to take the time to do an exposition of the whole chapter, but let's take a look at... Uh, Let's take a look at just at, at just the verse. I think that I think that will be sufficient. Acts chapter two or Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse thirteen. And watch this process. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now look at that. Is election in that verse? God chose you. How did it all happen? The Spirit of God did His sanctifying work. The end of it was, you believe. And if you want to go to, uh, shall we take a look at it? Might as well. First Peter chapter 1. I'm laying the axe to the roots on this, folks, for several reasons. But 1 Peter 1, let's take a look at this one and verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Again, Peter starts off with this truth of election. Through the sanctification of the Spirit. Again, you have that term, the Spirit of God working. And what is the end of it? Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. God knows us. God does this electing work, though we don't fully understand it. The Spirit of God draws us, and on our end, there must be the exercise of faith. Those things have to happen when a person comes to Christ. And folks, well, we'll uh, let's let's say one. Let's talk about this, and I've got a place where I've got some some uh, conclusions, so let's, let's just work at it. Millard Erickson states the case for irresistible grace. The question is, is this calling or conviction irresistible? Millard Erickson states the case for irresistible grace, saying special calling means that God works in a particularly effective way in the elect, enabling them to respond in repentance and faith and rendering it certain that they will. Grudem's definition. This calling is rather a kind of summons from the king of the universe, and it has such power that it brings about the response that it asks for in people's hearts. It's an act of God that guarantees a response. That's Grudem's emphasis. He states further, but in some cases, the gospel call is made so effectively by the work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts that they do respond 
we can say they have received effective power. Those who hold this in this way argue that the Spirit of God comes and He does His convicting work, and there are two kinds of conviction, two kinds of call. There is the general call that is a legitimate call of the gospel, invitation to the gospel that everybody hears, and there is that effective call in the hearts of the elect. Now, there is no question. I, I've been pretty moderate in the way I stated this. It seems to me that there's some variation of opinion or understanding among strong Calvinists on the matter of irresistible grace. Charles Hodge, long before Grudem or long before Erickson, uh, seems to state the issue somewhat differently. And again, I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to make Hodge any less of a Calvinist than he was or any less of a Reformed theologian than he was. You can read his book. But he said, the idea of Calvinists uniformly was that the truth, however clearly presented or forcibly urged, would never produce its full effect without a special influence of the Holy Spirit. Hodge's big emphasis is on that pre-conversion work of the Holy Spirit. This influence they maintained was supernatural, that is, above the mere moral power of the truth, and as such as and such as infallibly to secure the results, and yet to use their own illustration. Did the soul no more violence than demonstration does the intellect or persuasion the heart? So it was the Spirit of God drawing the man to Christ without doing any violation to his own person. Now, watch this. I think Hodge really nails why this is so important. Not so much the issue of is grace irresistible or not. I'll tell you my conclusion before I get there. I don't know that you can say that. I think the thing that we biblically can say is, you preach the gospel, the Spirit of God works, some respond and some don't. And the only way you could make any difference at all in that call is by the eventual human response. Uh, And I want to stay with chapter and verse. I don't want to get into human experience, but I think human experience bears that out. Now, citing John Owen, Hodge goes on to say, it's against the Pelagian theory, the idea that man just needs a little help or man has in himself the ability to, to respond to God. It's against the Pelagian theory that he's arguing when he maintains that moral suasion alone does not affect our regeneration, but that there is a direct agency of the Spirit in the world, which is such as our minds, wills, and affections are suited to be wrought upon and affected by according to their natures and natural operation. The Spirit of God works, and man responds in willing faith to Christ. But Owen's big point, Hodge's big point, and a very right biblical big point is that that act does 
not happen apart from the work of the Spirit of God. That is the thing that we have to have, maybe more than anything else. We've got to understand that. The Spirit of God does that work. And when He does it, the response of the sinner is a willing response. Now, Owen uh, wrote when in the, was he 1600s or 1700s? He was British. Uh, by the time you have Hodge writing, by the time you have strong writing, you have the next step in that progression, which was the evangelistic ministry of Charles Finney that developed into crisis theology and developed into some of the manipulation and that kind of thing. If any of you, I, folks, I'm, I'm going to be very honest here. I can't stand to watch much of it. But if any of you watched a Benny Hinn production on television, you of you want to admit that? Okay. Uh, I won't even ask you if you've been able to stay with your When he, <laughs> he comes, I go somewhere else. But but I want to tell you, and and, and uh, San Antonio. Who's who's the big guy with? Wrote the book on defense of Israel, chairman of the board of, of Oral Roberts University, graduate of Oral Roberts University, practicing on his second wife, Peggy. You watch one of those invitations from one of those charismatic and the manipulation is. Can I use the word palatable? Okay. That's where this stuff goes. And that's why we have to understand. And again, drawing the line between making the very real biblical plea. Think of Paul. Was it Agrippa? Is it Festus? Believest, and what's do you believe, and what's the response? Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And I do not want to minimize. Go read. Have all of you read at least one Spurgeon sermon front to back? If you haven't, you ought to. Go pick up his little book. It's got to be in the library here. Sermons on Sovereignty. And those are sermons on the doctrines of grace. And Spurgeon espoused more Calvinism than I am willing to espouse. But read his invitations in the end of it. Uh, read his sermon on Isaiah 45:22, the text that was preached the day he got saved. Read, read his sermon on that text. There, read Whitfield. There is a place. Read our A. Torrey. 
There is a place for real, legitimate, biblical persuasion. But it's got to be done in dependence upon the Spirit of God. And it's got to be done with the ministry of the Word of God. And it can never get to that business of manipulation. It can never get to that business of uh, coercion. That's, that's where the line's got to be drawn. How you draw it, that's, that's where the line has to be drawn. And uh, so, obviously, it becomes very important in today's goofy, crazy, theological setting. It is very important to understand it and to properly witness or preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it is very, very, it is very, very important. Let me, let me say, well, no, I'll, let's keep going. I'll, I've got, uh, what have I got, 10 minutes, 11 minutes? We go to, we go to 9, we go to 10 after. 10 after, oh good, I've got 21 minutes, great. Okay. Uh, Strong takes a more moderate position, saying we prefer to say that this special call is efficacious, that is, it infallibly accomplishes its purpose of leading the sinner to the acceptance of salvation. And Spurgeon has, as does Hodge, two things there. Uh, he's got that efficacious work, but he's also got the sinner accepting. And one common element between Hodge's statement and Strong's uh, is that Hodge argues that the Spirit's work does no violence to the soul, and Strong is careful to point out that the Spirit's call leads the sinner to a voluntary acceptance of salvation. And it should be noted that a logical conclusion is required to embrace irresistible grace or effective calling, as the later theologians call it. I've heard some say that if one believes in unconditional election, he must therefore believe in irresistible grace. And it should be noted as Gruden states that the only way to distinguish between general calling and effective calling is by the response of the person to the gospel. This lends credence to Burgraff's labeling of the distinction between the two as arbitrary. In other words, from a human standpoint, what we know is you preach, folks get saved. At what point does that grace become irresistible? We're talking about not manipulating people here at this point. We spent a long time on that. I don't know if I've used this illustration already here, uh, or if I used it the last time, if I used it in ST2. Uh, there's enough overlap. Uh, please allow me this again. I could call the man's name. He's been in glory for, uh, he's been in heaven for maybe close to 20 years now. But when I was in Rochester, Minnesota, going to seminary in Minneapolis, we had this old boy. His wife was a member of our church. They had eight children, and three or four of them were in the church. And he was not a believer. He was, in his heyday, a very profane. He would come to church basically on two occasions. The first occasion was if there was a 
Christmas program or a vacation Bible school program where his grandkids were in it, he'd come. He would very likely come at Christmas or Easter as the other time. And the crazy thing about it was, now we didn't have a big auditorium, but he'd sit right down in about the second row. He was a big guy. I, I was in his home. I talked to him, sat in his office. He was very successful. He was a, a livestock export. He shipped livestock out of the U.S. to different places, primarily Central and South America. But anyway, anyway, he'd come, and you'd preach. You'd give the invitation. He'd stand up. And I have seen that guy grab the pew in front of him until his knuckles were as white as Basin's shirt. It is a white shirt. Purple. Oh, colorblind. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. It was, it was, it was white. Do you? Good. All right. It was as white as Herbert's shirt. <laughs> and he'd stand there, and not only would his knuckles turn white, but his knuckles would be He wasn't angry. I mean, this went on for years. And one day, sitting in his living room, watching Jerry Falwell and the old time gospel, something happened. And all by himself, he got saved, and he was different. Now, it was it Jerry's ability to persuade more than mine? Never. Was it Jerry's intellect more than mine? I would say. But anyway, why? The Spirit of God work? A guy be under conviction? Nothing happened. All at once, it did. Where is it irresistible and where does it, where is it resistible? All we know from a human standpoint is the response. That's all we're going So I, that is, that is uh, Berggraf's point. Now, I'm getting close to wrapping this up, folks, believe it or not. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, sir. And you get absolutely no argument from me. If I have to define it like Grudem does, I don't want to go there. If I def if you want to hang on me what Charles Hodge says, guilty. Okay? Yes, sir. And we are dealing with a place where we are putting Scripture with Scripture and making conclusions, and we have to understand. And, and the nuance of it, and by the way, you get out there, and, and I just got, I had it given to me. I'm very grateful. I emailed the guy and thank I just got another systematic theology that's about as thick as those three books together. I'm 
Michael Horton, who teaches at Westminster in California, and he is as reformed as they come. And uh, Zondervan got a hold of me and wanted to send it to me, and I told him I can't use it for a text. Erickson is by definition our text, by institutional policy our text, and uh, I don't want to abuse the privilege. And the guy said, well, I can make an exception every once in a while when something to stop it. So I, so I now have, not only have Robert Raymond, who came out in 19, what, 80-something, late 80s or 98 maybe, and I've now got Michael Horton, so I have probably, the, and Grudem, so I've got the three latest statements of, of reformed systematic theology, and I am not going to sit down and read Horton from one end to the other. Uh, I am going to use Horton for research. I will promise you that. But it's almost a thousand pages. It's, it's, and there are no pictures. And you know what? Only thing, although if you ever lock, have you ever caught a smallmouth bass? You're not too big, but boy, that dude can fight. Uh, well, anyway, I think your analogy breaks down on another one, right? And I understand where you're going. Every every illustration is imperfect somewhere. I'll, I'll leave your illustration. I'm going to fight your illustration. The fishing in the New Testament, gospel fishing in the New Testament, is always net casting. Peter, I think, threw a hook to catch the fish with which to pay the taxes. But most of the time, it's, it's, throw, it's throwing out the net. <laughs> uh, see, and there again, you can go, you can go goofy places with it. Okay, all right. But folks, folks, here, back to the chase. Back to the chase. We should observe at this point that these men are correct. In one way for sure, no one comes to Christ without the powerful working of the Holy Spirit of God in their hearts, minds, and wills. We must proclaim the gospel in absolute and total dependence upon the Spirit of God to do His work in us. And this is, this is a place, again, folks, I deliberately, Walk out of the notebook, walk out of the notes, walk out of the Greek, walk out of the Hebrew, walk out of the theological reasoning, and walk right straight into giving the gospel to a lost person. And I hope we walk out of here with a passion to do more of it and to be consistent and sensitive to the Holy Spirit in seizing the opportunities the Lord brings to us. We've got to be the human witnesses by whom this lost world hears the gospel. And if we don't hammer that when we're in a soteriology class, the old southern boy would say we're pretty sorry. The other thing is, we've got to stress this emphasis upon the work of the Holy Spirit of God we are doing. 
dependent upon it. Scripture seems to indicate that men can resist the Holy Spirit's conviction. God has no pleasure in the death of sinners, and yet men are responsible to heed God's gospel pleas and turn to Christ. Jesus spoke several times of those who had resisted the preaching of the gospel and pled with him to come to him. I think of his words in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest them that are sent unto thee, how oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gathereth chicks under her wings, and ye would not. I mean, there, there is, think of Jesus in those settings where he's preaching the gospel just to the twelve, and Judas is there. The Pharisees rejected John the Baptist's ministry, Luke chapter 7. Stephen charged the leaders of Israel with resisting the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. Pretty stiff stuff, isn't it? Might get a guy stoned. And Paul pled with men to trust Christ, and he urged them not to resist the grace of God. And Hebrews also makes the same plea, and we have we have dealt with these issues. Yes, sir. Or they weren't elect. Yes, I understand that. I just think I think, Brother Chip, that is going beyond where we can go. We don't deny God has an elective purpose. Scriptures fall. We re- understand that we are responsible to preach the gospel and we must do it and we must depend on the Holy Spirit of God that's that is in evangelism the great barrier against the manipulation of the human taking things into our own hands Now, uh, I want to make some conclusions. Then I want to talk to you about something that you will be all excited to hear. Capital E, conclusions. We believe that God's foreknowledge is part of his omniscience and involves his knowledge of the future. It's doubtful at best concept of determination can be read into the word. God has chosen some to salvation. Scripture calls Christians God's elect. God has predestined or predetermined that all who are saved will be glorified. Scripture does not teach the idea of reprobation or double predestination. God issues a general call, a genuine call to salvation to all men. Men are responsible for their faith in Christ or their rejection of him. The Bible teaches that God draws men to Christ by means of his call, which we understand to be accomplished by the Holy Spirit's work of conviction as described in John 16. As men do resist God, men can and do resist God's call. They stand accountable to God for their reception or rejection of Christ. And... Uh, 
This is Carson. I, you've heard me make reference to this statement before. So let's just get him on the record here. I frankly doubt that finite human beings can cut the Gordian knot. At least this finite human being cannot. The sovereignty responsibility tension is not a problem to be solved. Rather, it is a framework to be explored. I hope you'll highlight that. I hope you'll walk out of here with, with that conclusion. To recognize this is already a major advance, for it rejects those easy solutions which impose alien philosophical constructions upon the biblical data not conducive to the investigator system. To explore this tension is to explore the nature of God and his ways with men. Carson is nobody's dummy. And I greatly respect his intellect. That is a terrific piece of writing. That's Donald A. Carson. Yep. Don't you have the footnote there? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, as we preach the gospel, we must be conscious of several important elements. The gospel message itself, the preacher or soul winner who is charged to faithfully proclaim the gospel message, we're the agent through whom that message must come, the Holy Spirit who must bring conviction to the sinner, the lost person who's responsible and accountable for his action and uh, reaction to the gospel message, either in receiving it, being saved, or in rejecting it and continuing in his lost condition. Now, any questions quickly? I want to take about the next three minutes. We are ready to start with section four, conversion, repentance, and faith. We will take up there on Friday morning. Please read that section through. Go back and review Erickson on that section. Uh, and Ben, you made a comment about maybe class being canceled somewhere down the line. I think I will. Well, that is that is wishful thinking. Uh, pardon me. No. Why don't we? Oh, next week we're out for Thanksgiving, so we miss it next week. Oh, that's boy, that's up on the schedule. But listen, folks, let me tell you where we are. Two things. Number one, we have sections four through ten. Some of these are going to go very quickly. We have not dealt with all of the big issues, but we have dealt with a bunch of them. After repentance and faith, we're going to get to justification. And Dr. Hudson has already spent some time with you on NP Wright and his his stuff, but we'll, we've got to deal with the big issue of penal substitutionary atonement. The rest of it should go well, but we are going to need every minute of every class session we have left, and I want to roll, right? So I hope repentance and faith, uh, we get finished on Friday, and then we should be we should be in pretty good shape. Final exam. I don't know what all is going to happen on the final exam. I know I intend to put it up online during final exam week and let you do it. It will be open book. One thing that I am thinking of, and I have already written it down, 
as an idea for the final exam. One question very likely could be asking you to write an essay on the place of the Holy Spirit. Because what we have dealt with in this whole regard, you can bring in irresistible grace into the discussion. You can bring whatever in. I'll try to give you some study questions in advance, but we've got to make facts. Right? And we, we've not wasted any time. We've just got to make the very best use of our Good. Have a good day. Friday morning, 7.55 a.m. See you then. Thank you. Oh, the sanctification of the Spirit? Oh, yes. And calling also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have a good day, everybody. Uh, I imagine that's me because they're going to eat me up. I, no, I'm not speaking in chapel. Uh, Friday, there's a unified chapel, isn't there? Did I see that? Oh, is it Friday? So we don't have to go to that? And, and Dr. Oates is...